Welcome, everybody. Hey, this is going to be a special this special episode. This is our random surprise. We, we don't know what we're going to do and when we're going to do it, but we have had so many questions about the current case that's going on, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie. Murph and I don't like to be nattering nabobs and just, you know, be nittery nitheads and get on TV and just talk about it. I mean, I, I could, I've been asked before, like cases like this to come on and talk about it. And I decline simply for the reason is I just don't want to be one of a thousand people that's profiting off the misery of others, you know? And it's like, right. what I'd rather do is like what we're going to do right now. We're, if you want to hear about the case, go to the internet. Al Gore helped create this amazing thing called the internet. You guys can go there and find out everything you want about the case. What we're going to do instead is we're going to walk you through it from two perspectives. One is my perspective as a homicide detective. How do you approach handling something like this? What do you do? You know, what, what are the things that go into it? There's going to be kind of a crossover piece because we're going to talk about now when the feds start getting involved, basically the FBI, some of their activities. And then Steve, obviously, Steve has, Steve, you got a little experience hunting people, I would say, little don't bit. you? A little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> and we're going to talk about how to do a manhunt. How are we going to go after this guy named uh, Brian Laundrie? Uh, so what, let's, let's get into it this way. Look. If you want to learn about the case, go to the internet. You'll find out a lot of things about Gabby Petito and uh, Brian Laundrie and their, mm -hmm. you know, uh, van trip across America. The van life is, I think, what their hashtag they were using. Yeah. But let's talk about it from this standpoint. We have a set of circumstances that lead us to believe, first of all, he showed back up at home, and it was 10 days before uh, Gabby's parents knew that she was missing. So there's, to me, there's an obvious issue right there. So right. let's even start from the beginning. What's one of the basic things you do right up front? You got to get a good interview. I mean, that's the first, you got to lock people into stories. You, you, you get them in there, you lock them down. Now, Steve, the difference between state and local, that if you were in there, and I don't know if it works the same way with uh, DEA. I know with FBI, if you're talking to an FBI agent and you lie to an FBI agent, it's a federal crime. Is that, does, that, does that same statute apply when, with DEA when you guys were interviewing people? It did. Believe it or not, that's what the uh, the bomber that put the flight, the bomb on the Avianca flight, Lakika is what we call him, that's his nickname. The, what he was originally arrested on in New York City was because we knew where he was going to be at what time on a payphone, and when agents approached him, he gave him a false name. It's the only time in my life that I've ever known anybody to be charged with lying to a federal agent. He was convicted, and he got the maximum five years for, in federal prison for lying to a federal agent. Well, see, and there's lots of tools in the tool bag, right? We have lots of arrows yep. in our quiver. So one of the first things you do, and you can actually charge people even under, under state state laws a lot of time with obstruction of justice, you know, when you lie to somebody during the course of an investigation. So let's walk through this. The first thing I do if, if I'm a detective or I'm responding there, especially with circumstances like this, her parents haven't heard from her for 10 days, you know, they, they, before they reported her missing. They weren't sure what was going on. So in that 10 days, you know, you've got a lot of things going on. Lock down the story. Get mm -hmm. Brian in there. Get him interviewed. Find out details. Where's the van? What you do? You know, the other thing, too, is, Steve, one of the things, and this was in our um, case of the month that I, the very first one I did where I talked about the Jean Benet Ramsey case. Right. And one of the tools that I used to use, especially when I was trying to determine if somebody was going to cooperate with the police and also to kind of get an idea of whether or not they're going to be hiding things is I would still go get a search warrant, but one of the things I would ask is for consent to search, to see how willing are they to allow me to search their house or search their car for evidence. And look, if you're the victim of a crime or if you're a parent and your child is missing, most of them are going to quote, whatever you need, take my blood, take my hair, take my fingerprints, you know, whatever it is, you're getting Absolutely. that kind of cooperation, right? Yep. 
So you're going to want to gauge the level of cooperation for that you're going to get from these folks. So it's kind of a psychological tactic, but it's a great way to start right from the start to kind of get an idea. Am I dealing with the right people or do I need to widen my scope? And the way you do investigations, it's very much a concentric circle. The first people you look at are close friends and family, you know, because that's most likely where you're going to get the best information from. And then as you find people, as you can eliminate them, as we say, from suspicion, uh, the British actually have a good method. It's called TIE. It used to be trace, interview, and eliminate, but they call it trace, interview, and evaluate. So you Mm -hmm. trace their movements, you find out what they did, you interview them, and then you evaluate. Do we keep them in the circle? Can we move them on our on our tie board to another location and continue on and find who are the people we need to interview? So that's one of the things I would have done on this because you, you've got, she's missing now for t- or she's been missing for ten days. Her parents report her. So initially, if this is me, Steve, mm-hmm. already uh, the hairs are up on the back of my neck. My you know my radar antenna is up because. That is not natural. If something had happened to her and she went missing and I'm the boyfriend, I'm the fiance, first thing I'm doing is calling the police wherever I'm at. And they were in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I think it's where she went missing from. That's where they eventually found her body. It was a campsite north of uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. If I'm the if I'm the fiance and my you know, my my girl, my fiance has gone missing. I'm calling the police. Hey, man, she's gone. I can't find her. Something's happened. Well, and and you know, so we're both parents, and, and a lot of our listeners are parents as well. You know, they are engaged. Uh, so there, you know, there is a long term relationship going on here. However, if they're being in constant contact, and then all of a sudden that stops, well, okay, maybe they just want some privacy. Maybe they want some alone time. But then the the whole purpose of this trip was for them to document it on social media. Right. So now all of a sudden those stop as well. Well, you know, I mean, the law enforcement, we call that a clue. Things aren't just don't seem normal. They're not, something has changed. It's not like it was ongoing. So what happened that all of a sudden this communication has changed? You know, so that's one of the first things that should come to your mind is, especially as a parent, you know, heck, our kids are all married and, and out on their own and everything, got their own children. But there's a certain rhythm for contact. And when they right. break rhythm and you go, okay, where are you at? And it's like... Yeah. You know, what just happened? Yeah. You know, my, my kids, my youngest is, you know, in her 30s. You know, I got the boys too. But it's like, we still do the thing, hey, you know, when they come down to see us or we go up to see them, hey, text us, make sure you got home okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We, we know it takes about an hour, right? So you've got these things going on. So initially, and this is what complicates the investigation because as we as we know now, her body was found out there. And that's one of the questions we got. I think it was from Fred and a couple others. You know, do you want to weigh in on this? I said, I don't know enough, but I can give you a quick answer. Mm-hmm. If I found that the body was buried in a shallow grave, I'm getting an arrest warrant, arrest warrant right away for the fiance. Absolutely, because bears and bobcats don't bury people. They eat them. They eat them. And that's when we found out from Dave Reichert, too, that was one of the big issues when they went out and they did uh, outdoor crime scenes is they had to follow yeah. animal trails, you know, yep. tunnels and stuff, because animals would take bones. They would, you know, scavenge. Uh, and they, you know, they're scavengers. They would they would look and take things. So, so if it's a you know, and we don't know enough. Here's the other thing too, Steve. Everybody pretends they know everything. Well, if you know, she was this or she. I, I don't know. But here I can give you the either or. If she's in a shallow grave, that that shows intent. You know, nobody accidentally buries a, a dead person in a shallow grave unless they had something to do with their homicide or they know about it. Right. So, right. If they're in a shallow grave now. Here's the here's the other issue. If a body if a body is left out in the open, then you have the issue now of was it accidental or intentional? There are documented cases of people even around cliffs and other stuff to where somebody says, "Oh, they slipped and fell." 
Well, we know that we have somebody who's died, and there's so when you look at legal findings, the, there are four legal findings basically in every state. So it was uh, it was accidental, it was suicide, um, it was natural. Or it was homicide, and then there's another uh, finding which is undetermined. So you can have homicide, and the and then the way they died could be through strangulation. But you can also die by strangulation and have it be an accidental death, like if you got caught around machinery. You know, we right. farm boys and stuff have seen that, right? So th- th- there's the cause of death, there's the mechanism, right? So you look at was it accidental, was it uh, homicide? You know, was it intentional? Was it natural? And then you can actually still charge somebody with homicide, even if the cause of death is undetermined, which they did with the bodies outdoors with Gary Ridgway. Many of mm-hmm. those, they couldn't tell. All they had was his uh, testimony later, his statements to, to go on. But you, it's very hard to tell after a body is decomposed for years what the cause of death was. Now, sometimes if you see a, a hole through the skull, if you see uh, ribs that are fractured, you can see uh, marks on the ribs or arms where it looks like a knife was used. Forensic pathologists are really good about coming up to say, hey, look, it's very possible, very probable that this is how this person died. So it's homicide, and this is how they died. And there's several ways that you categorize how people die. So that's one of the things I'm looking for, too. Well, we know that when they found the body, we don't know enough about the crime scene yet, but it was definitely outdoors. Body was in some state of decomposition. So now it complicates the investigation because now you the interview is really key now if you could have gotten to Brian get him interviewed then you start then you start t- trace right tracing every step now Steve the other thing too you were just mentioning not only do they have social media but they actually had contact with law enforcement there's dash camera video there's body right. cam video so we know and I, I was just reading a story before we got on a park ranger uh, they have some armed park rangers out there I can't think of their technical name like assistance and uh, you know visitor uh, officer or something but they actually had her in the back of the car. She was crying, and they determined that um, it was more of an emotional issue than it was domestic violence. I mean, they, they look back on it, and I can tell this ranger is, is second-guessing, but they, you go on the facts you have. So you have all of these facts now, and now I have a person that hasn't been seen for 10 days. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, he did it. Well, okay, he <laughs> yeah. could have done it, right? But yeah. here's, the other, here's the other thing, too. How many cases have you seen, Steve, in your career that looked to be slam dunk, and then a defense attorney got to court and was able to, all they have to do is raise a reasonable doubt, and you saw somebody that probably should have gone to jail walk out the door because a defense attorney was able to provide a plausible explanation and create reasonable doubt in the mind of the jury? Absolutely. It happens all the time, and that's that's why, as an investigator, you need to, to take the, that extra second. Even though something looks obvious, you need to take the extra second and put yourself in the shoes of the defense attorney. How would you defend this? Because that's how you win cases from our side when you go into court. You're ready for those arguments that they present. They're supposed to let you know, give you an idea of who their witnesses are going to be and, and what their defense is going to be, but they there's no reason they can't throw something in at the last second. Oh, Your Honor, this just came to light. Or it, they don't have to tell you what questions they're going to ask. All they have to do is right. put somebody on the witness list, and they may have some information that goes to what they call impeachment. So you don't have to disclose impeachment material in many places ahead of time. You spring it on them. You go, well, you said this, and now that's a lie because I have this recording which is what they did to Mark Furman in the OJ trial. Mark Furman, F. Lee Bailey, had that interview of him using a racial slur after he admitted that he didn't. They didn't have to disclose that until Furman got on the stand and lied, which mm-hmm. is what he did. And that's why Furman got, you know, he got fired, he got charged with the felony, um, and which really, I mean, that 
that's what happens, folks. That's why we have this adversarial system, you know, in court. Yep, it is. Now, um, have you heard what, have they announced what the cause of death was? I haven't seen that anywhere. No, and, and you know, uh, we could speculate a lot. I, I tell you one person I don't listen to, and I have to shut her off, is Nancy Grace. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't <laughs> listen to Nancy Grace talk about this stuff. Well, they just, they repeat the same thing over and over, and then they repeat the same thing, and then they repeat the same thing. It's, it just gets monotonous. Well, I, here, so let's let's walk through a couple probable things, right? So if, the, if there doesn't appear to be anything apparent, if the body is out there for about, which is what it appears with her, maybe about 10 days, there's still a good chance you can recover uh, the bones, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of stuff intact. And one of the things you look for is so during the, so there's a couple things. So let's let's define a couple terms. There's a coroner and there's a pathologist. A coroner is not always a trained medical professional. A coroner could be an elected person in places, right. I think in Louisiana, other places they're elected. A coroner has certain powers. They can convene a coroner's jury. They can do other things. But they basically come out and they basically said, they go, yeah, that person's dead. It looks suspicious, so we need to order an autopsy. The autopsy is now performed by the forensic pathologist. So one of the homicides I had, actually one of one that I'm going to do a case of the month on, um, Juan Aon was the suspect. He shot the, the victim that he shot. Um, we actually had, we took custody of the body. We, we kept the chain of custody. There's always somebody with it. Me and another officer, uh, he was an officer, I was a detective. We actually loaded the body onto a vehicle, drove it up to Topeka mm-hmm. and had a forensic pathologist in Topeka do it because it was a complicated case and we needed to, somebody with his skill set to do this. So, you know, so the pathologist is different than the coroner and the pathologist now does the full autopsy. They take blood, they take serology. That's when you've got a, a body that's still intact. Now, when you have a decomposed body, Again, goes back to if you guys go back and listen to our episode 13 with uh, Dave Reichert and the Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. The processing of the outdoor crime scene is absolutely critical. Absolutely. I mean, and you've got to you've got to widen it out too. So, where was she found? How far away was it? Off of a cliff? Is it possible that she fell and slipped off of a cliff? And that's going to be his statement. A lot of people stage crime scenes to make it look like that. Like, oh no, mm-hmm. she fell. So you've got to collect evidence. I mean, even going up and down the face of where she fell from, looking for, was there, you know, do you, can you find fibers from the clothing? Can you find anything from her possessions that somehow ended up in the rocks? Uh, you've, I mean, it is tedious work, but it's important work because we're not talking about writing a parking ticket. We're talking about You're talking homicide. about homicide. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, and and I'm just going through some notes here as, we're, as you're talking and and— one thing, uh, again, not second guessing people down there, and I'm not pointing my finger at anybody, but I, I really don't understand why he returned home to Florida on September 1st, and her family didn't report her missing for until September 11th. So he's there, you know. Why isn't his family out with her family doing everything they can to find out what happened to her? I tell you what, I'd be on that boy's front door. Well, Steve, I mean, my first conversation is even if I'm his mother and father. He shows up, I'm going, where's Gabby? Yeah, yeah. You know? And it's going to be interesting to see if the family gets charged with anything once they capture him or they find his body or whatever happens. If you want to hear the rest of this episode and our analysis of the Gabby Petito case, head on over to patreon.com slash gameofcrimes and become a player in the biggest game of all. You'll have three different levels you can join us at. Every level is packed with content you won't find anywhere else, like the real story about the manhunt for the world's first narco-terrorist, Pablo Escobar, told by the agents themselves, my co-host Steve Murphy, and Javier Pena. 
We do monthly live streams where we let our players vote on which movie or TV show gets put through the patented narcometer and is scored on a scale of 1 to 10 kilos. At a monthly Q&A, random surprises, and the fun just never stops. So get ready to become a player in the biggest game of all, the Game of Crimes. Join us. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Thank you.